The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Alright, we are back. Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell. Joined again by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How you doing, sir? Just cracked a beer, got off from work, so doing okay. Right on. I've been cracking beers all afternoon, so I'm doing fine myself. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. Uh, we are back, and we are at our final uh, episode of our sex comedy series, the one that has sort of um, expanded over uh, more of a month and a half, more than we actually planned, but, you know, real life and all that bullshit. But uh, it's been a fun journey. Uh, I've quite enjoyed it. It um, really, really has. It's definitely much more than I thought it was going to be when we started. And we've only scratched the surface, you know, so hopefully we can visit some more of these movies in the future, maybe in a less uh, structured way. You know? Yeah. Um, I, actually, I mean, I would not be against doing another sex comedy series at some point. So uh, and I, I've, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. We've, we've talked about some interesting films, and we've had some pretty good discussions, I think, about these films. And I think this might be the culmination of all of that in this episode, where we might have some pretty good discussion about the film we're going to get into. But before we do that, just take care of a little bit of host work here. First thing we're just going to go to is a couple of comments we've had. First comment uh, is from Corey Carr from Slaughter Film, our friends at Slaughter Film. And by the way, I mentioned in a previous episode that uh, I was invited to produce a post for their uh, blog for Slaughter Film for their uh, summer school series where they look at documentaries related to horror films, genre films. I wrote up my post for The Thing, for the uh, documentary that shows up on uh, the DVD and Blu-ray release of The Thing. And that will be available on Slaughter Film in July 20th, I believe they said. So I'll keep pimping that as we go into July, but uh, look look forward to that. And also just read Slaughter Film and read their reviews of all their stuff that they uh, cover because they do a really great job. Yes, uh, they do. Yeah, uh, but uh, the comment from uh, Corey, he says he really likes Nightcrawler. The main character is so terrible and creepy but by the end of the film, I almost felt like applauding him for making everything uh, work out in his favor. He's scum, but he gets results. Golf clap. And he says, <laughs> and of course, this makes me feel like scum for appreciating his moxie. He also says, Russ Meyer makes exploitation films that you can't just write off as tit-filled trash. There is almost always something deeper in each of his films, and that's why I enjoy them. Perhaps with the exception of Mondo Topless, which is nonstop 60s boobs. Keep up the good work, Corey. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Corey. And I agree. Uh, again, and I'll get into it later, but, yeah, Nightcrawler is awesome. Yeah, uh, that's the thing about Russ Meyer's films. Uh, we might have to get into some of more of them later on uh, as we do this podcast. He gets written off as maybe just sort of a titty movie guy. But uh, there is a lot going on. Like, he's actually a really legitimately 
great filmmaker, I think, personally. So uh, Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of... Uh, there are so many of these guys who kind of worked in the kind of quote-unquote trash cinema um, in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, who really had lots of ideas and had real structure and you know, were really filmmakers who just kind of worked within these genres where they could find people to give them money, you know. Um, yeah. My favorite of those is probably George Romero, whom we've uh, <laughs> Quite a quite a bit on this podcast before, but anyway, uh, yeah, yeah Russ Meyer uh, definitely. Uh, we should cover more of his films. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, constant uh, listener uh, Greg uh, Bylog. Uh, he says, uh, and this is related to the previous comment as well. He says, uh, "I'll add a follow up to my boobs comment talked about in the beginning of the episode, as I didn't realize it would be dissected to such a degree." Uh, <laughs> wah wah. I, <laughs> I, I, Daniel is an asshole to his listeners yes that's probably <laughs> he says I was not really referring to fake boobs by my comment as those really hold no interest to me plastic surgery has its place which you guys already talked about but obviously it is very overused by those with lots of money and little self esteem also with clothes on rarely do fake tits look real and with clothes off you'd have to be blind to not be able to spot a fake pair a mile away. He says, but back to my comment, I was actually referring to naturals. It has to do with women being under more pressure than ever to be supermodel skinny, and as a result, those wonderful big boobs seen in Russ Meyer movies are not nearly as common. Boobs are still awesome in the present, just less so in my own, in my opinion. Uh, he says, also, yes, we have a lot more access to boobs nowadays, but quantity does not equal quality. And uh, I don't disagree with that. I, I don't I don't disagree with that. And I would I, I would like to just apologize. I do. I do think I came across as a little bit harsh uh, last week when I was uh, talking about that. I get a little bit tired of the uh, the endless uh, pretending things were better in some previous past of 1957 or 1979 or 1993 or whenever when mm-hmm. whenever uh, we look back and we think that things were great. Personally, I think that the beauty standards of 1957 were just as impossible and difficult and ama- you know just as difficult to attain in 1957 as the beauty standards today are. And the fact that like aesthetically, I happen to prefer one over the other is fine but ultimately i think women should get to be should get to look like what they want to look like and um it's not up to them to please my eye and i would like to see more kinds of figures available for all movies you know like like different kinds of women looking different ways is yeah. is really what i would encourage um yeah. although you know really the, the comment is, is fairly inoffensive in the sense that it's really just saying, like, I like the voluptuous one in the 50s, and I absolutely agree. So, yeah, and you know. um, I, I think I think uh, a good point would be, would be made here is that um, Russ Meyer, as much as he, as he was a big tit man, he had women of all shapes and sizes in most of his films. Like, throughout his, his filmography, you, you can see a lot of differences. Like, you'll never see... Uh, a flat-chested woman in his in his movies. That's right. definitely a no-no. But he did have everything from, you know, just normal body size pretty much to what would be considered a beast really in some in some uh cases. So, I mean, he was he was appreciation, he appreciated the female form in basically all shapes and sizes. So, yeah, no. I don't really have more to say at least at this point about that topic. I mean, I do have more to say, but let's move on. 
Yeah. Um, all right. Thank you very much for the comment. And uh, we're going to be moving on here. Um, we're not going to be doing Movie God or anything like that because I think we have a pretty loaded episode as it is. So uh, we'll just move on to uh, whatever we've been uh, watching uh, lately. And I'll let you start, Daniel, if you have anything you want to mention. Uh, sure. I actually uh, haven't had a lot of time to watch movies this week just for, uh, you know, just kind of personal things. I do a lot of uh, watching of TV uh, in the evenings. I get home from work, and it's easy to put on kind of a 30-minute TV show rather than a movie. Um, I also have the habit of when I put on a movie, I go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to watch, like, the first 30 minutes of this and then end up watching an hour and a half, and then uh, you know, usually not a good sign. But um, I actually uh, rewatched the last couple of weeks the um, British TV show The IT Crowd, oh, yeah. um, which is uh, very thematically appropriate for uh, this week's episode because it is um, basically the story of uh, a couple of uh, IT nerds, um, information technology nerds, and who work in the basement of some big company, and uh, a lot of their problems with... Uh, dating and society in general and uh in a lot of ways can be read as sort of a reaction to some of the kinds of ideas in revenge of the nerds and and other movies of its kind which i think i'll talk about a little bit more later but if you have not seen that show and you are a fan of this general sort of you know thing definitely worth checking out it's it's a one of my favorite just comfort shows to put on so right now I think that's all I've really got right now. I just want to mention uh, I haven't watched anything new this week. I, I basically just was rewatching stuff I've liked so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I rewatched uh, Nightcrawler. Uh, I love that film. I, I can't stress enough how much I want everyone to watch that film. Uh, just just for Jake Gyllenhaal's performance alone. Um, we're going to be doing here in the near future a top sort of cinematic villains episode and I'm pretty sure Jake Gyllenhaal's character is going to show up on my list because he's just that goddamn good. I I think it's a performance that's going to be it's going to, it's it's going to be regaled in 10 or 20 years as one of the great cinematic villains, I think. Um It'll, it'll be a bit of a slow burn, but I think people will uh, come to appreciate his performance, just how really good and goddamn creepy it really is. And the other one, and it's a movie from 2013, but I think it's the best film I've watched this year still, uh, Blue Ruin, which is a, essentially a revenge film, but it's a realistic revenge film with real consequences. It is just brutal and sad and depressing and at the same time really, really well made. I'm just riveted every time I watch it. I've watched it several times now, and it's still on Netflix. Um, I, I encourage everyone to check it out if they if they get a chance. You know, it's just one of those titles that sort of pops up on Netflix, and you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to watch it or not. I suggest you watch it. It's a great, great film. Yeah, awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out at some point in the near future. All right. So we can definitely move on now to our final sex comedy of this series that we're going to be covering and it is going to be Revenge of the Nerds from 1984, directed by Jeff Kenu. Uh, I guess I would, I would think so. Yeah, Kenu. Yeah, Jeff, uh, written by several people: Tim uh, Metcalf, uh, Miguel Tejera Flores, uh, Steve Zakakaris, and Jeff Buhai. Why are all your names so difficult for me to pronounce? I don't know. But yeah, uh, starring Robert Carradine, uh, Anthony Edwards, Timothy Busfield, Curtis Armstrong, and several other people. I'm sure we'll cover some of them here as we go. And honestly, I'll just uh, let you take over right now, Daniel, if you want to start in about this film. 
So sure. Yeah, I've said this a few times on this podcast. I grew up on this film. Like this is one of those. Um, before I actually start talking about the film, I thought it would be worth uh, running down my nerd bona fides, if you don't mind. Taking a moment. <laughs> yeah, go um, ahead. Just, just so that, just so that, because the audience may not really understand, you know. Um, so I want to, you know, the audience better than I do. So I'm going to read through a list of a few things about me, and you just stop me when I, you think I've reached the level at which I am nerdier than the average person listening to this podcast. Okay. okay? <laughs> um, First of all, I, I my other podcast is a Doctor Who podcast mm-hmm. where we talk about uh, 50 years of Doctor Who history from a variety of uh, technical angles. So I've got that going for me. I was in the chess club in high school. Okay. I uh, majored in chemistry with a math minor in college. All right. uh, I currently work as an analytical chemist in a forensic toxicology lab. Um, <laughs> I'm currently wearing a T-shirt from the webcomic XKCD, which is about the nerdiest webcomic out there. I run Linux on my laptop at home. <laughs> I uh, grew up on uh, reading uh, 40 science fiction, including uh, Isaac Asimov, Heinlein Clark, Star Trek The Next Generation, um, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think I've, I've established my bona fides here, or should I continue? Yeah, well, for a minute there, when you were talking about your shirt, I thought you went too far. Then you actually kind of went back and regressed a bit when you talked about reading 40 sci-fi and then watching mm-hmm. Star Trek. So, <laughs> But yeah. I, I, I think I think people uh, get the general gist, uh, and and I, I, I fall into a couple of those categories as well. So, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so this is not – I'm not trying to um, – pull the, uh, the nerd dick out or anything and like try to uh, compare, you know, it's just trying to like indicate, like I come about this honestly. So like for me, I saw Revenge of the Nerds maybe when I was eight or nine, you know, and kind of grew up with it. Like it was just always on the TV. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had a, I had a VHS tape recorded off of HBO or something and I would yeah. put it on, on a regular basis. So this was, this is uh, the first two films. I literally have watched so many times that like rewatching them for this podcast was not like I did not. I mean, coming at them as a 35 year old man means different than the last time I saw them, which was probably 20 years ago or 15 years ago. But it certainly was not like, you know, oh, there's this. I, I remember these films. I, these films were part of my DNA, which is the reason that I want to put that out is that I think that when people like me criticize certain elements of nerd culture as it exists today, which I think is where I'm going to go with this to a large degree. There is this sort of like, well, you're not a real nerd. I mean, you know, who are you really? You know, like, mm. like you're just some some hipster douchebag pretending to be. Like, no, I'm I'm about as hardcore a nerd as you get, like, honestly. That being said, I want to start off, and I'm actually going to do this a little bit differently than I was planning on doing it, because okay. there's this excellent article posted on Tor.com a couple of, uh, about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's entitled, 30 Years Later, Real Genius is Still the Geek Solidarity Film that Nerd Culture Deserves. And it's uh, by a person named Emily Asher Perrin. She compares Revenge of the Nerds to this other film, Real Genius, which is uh, one of my other kind of favorite films. I mean, that one really holds up even today. And I think we should cover it on the podcast. But I just want to read the opening paragraph of this. And I have it open on my phone here, so apologies. I want to read this just because it kind of encapsulates everything that I was going to say about Revenge of the Nerds. And it's that way it lets me just kind of set that aside and then just move on, right? Um, this is from the article, and uh, if you just Google Real Genius, Revenge of the Nerds, it's the first thing that pops up. So that's probably the okay. best way to find it. And I'll link um, it anyway in the notes. So Okay. Uh, it's interesting to me that Revenge of the Nerds, while still full up of the nostalgia that the 80s lends us, 
is lately being lately being repositioned in the zeitgeist. What was viewed for many years as a bit of harmless fun that waged the banner for nerds everywhere is finally being called out for exactly what it is. An us versus them revenge fest that never lets go of racism or misogyny and damages the image of geek culture more than it applauds for it. That shouldn't be surprising. Revenge of the Nerds was always just a frat house comedy with a thin, nerdy gloss applied to it. And that's fine with me, because that was never my go-to movie for feeling the geek solidarity. And then uh, she goes on to talk about Real Genius, and in particular talks about the uh, Michelle uh, Mayrick, something, um, the actress who plays Gilbert's girlfriend in this yeah, film, yeah. also plays a pivotal character in Real Genius, and is a much more full-fledged real person in that film. Read that article, it's absolutely worth it. But I think for me, just reading that sentence, like this was ultimately always kind of a dirty, misogynist, racist, revenge film, frat house movie with a little bit of a nerdy gloss over it. Pretty much encapsulates everything I was going to say about this. Mm-hmm. In this whole series, I've been talking a lot about, you know, kind of the, the rapiness of these films and how they do have these kind of deep issues with misogyny. And I think that Revenge of the Nerds, it just doesn't consider the women at all. There's just no. Like, no. it's, it's hard to even feel that much about it because it obviously, like, I don't want to just, like, yes, let's leave the rape aside because that's a pivotal part of this film. It's kind of what people are talking about about the film right now. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have other things to say. So it's horrifying that it's in there. It's about a third of the film is this kind of uh, panty raid, uh, which I'm going to talk about panty raids here in a minute. Panty raid... Um, rape kind of thing where he he rapes the girl and she falls in love with him, which is, oh my God, awful. And all the (laughs) cultural stuff that that comes from that and all the stuff that nerd culture has kind of accepted this movie as. But I think that uh, the author there really encapsulated that just in that few sentences, much better than I would have. And so I want to do something else, if if, uh, you will uh, forgive me uh, on that. And uh, the first thing I want to do is I just want to talk about the film itself in the context of all these other sex comedies. And that is, this is actually, once you leave all those other issues aside, this is actually a good movie. Like this other, like something like The Beach Girls, for instance, it's kind of fun. It's kind of silly. It's kind of, but there's really not anything going on. There's really not, there's not really a structure or a plot. And a lot of those other movies kind of have that structure. Revenge of the Nerds is actually, and I think the reason that it's stuck around, the reason that it's still played on TV every now and then is because it's actually a good movie. There are really, really talented people in this movie. I mean, yeah. um, Robert Carradine um, has kind of gone to do some stuff, but like, think about how deep this cast is. You've got Timothy Busfield. You've got Anthony Edwards. Anthony Edwards. Yeah. Uh, you've got Curtis Armstrong, who has had an amazingly kind of. He was thirty years old when this movie was made, yeah. which is amazing. Well, he he started out in risky business, and then he's done like lots of TV and various mm-hmm. parts, and then he sort of had a bit of a uh, kind of a sex comedy resurgence, sort of on his uh, sex comedy credentials, I guess, based somewhat around that. Well, he was in Van Wilder. He was in a one of the American Pie direct-to-video sequels. Not that that's a great accomplishment, but, you know. He, he's had a perfectly fine a, a career as a character actor. Um, I think his best performance is probably he was the uh, kind of record executive guy in Ray. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. 2004, I believe, uh, biopic of uh, Ray Charles, um, which I have issues with that movie, but I think his performance is amazing, and I think it's such a like subtle he's a, he's, performance. He's a really good actor. He really is. He, he really is. He gives it his all. And, I mean, you see it in, in this film. You know, he yeah. he's, he absolutely is this character. Like, you don't... Like, like, you think he's an idiot because he plays this idiot so well. So, yeah. um... <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I, I think that that was sort of, sort of something I wanted to bring up, just that, like, this movie is actually, it's entertaining. It is a yeah. fun movie. Um, there is, like, I mean, there is a structure and a plot here, and there are some themes that the movie, I think, is reaching for. But um, since I think I've talked long enough, uh, what do you? What are your thoughts about Revenge of the Nerds? What was your thought about watching it for this podcast? Or your uh, do you have a history with the film the way I do? I watched it several times when I was younger. Uh, I think the first time I saw it was around ten or eleven years old, something like that. And you know, that's the age where it's like awesome titties on screen. You know, like mm-hmm. you're not thinking about the considerate the the moral considerations i guess you're not really thinking about that at all like none of that comes in your mind it's just like oh i see some boobs um there's a little bit of slapstick kind of comedy going on there as well some sort of you know a little bit of gross out humor and things like that so that's exactly the sort of age group where that stuff is like yeah i want to see more of that although I, i will say this movie for me out of all the sort of uh and i was a lot like you where i grew up watching all these sorts of movies all the time when i was a teenager and stuff this is one of the ones where it was not one I ever really liked all that much. Like, I didn't really care about it all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if it was on and there was nothing else to do, I'd watch it. But I think one of the central things about this one is that, and maybe it's just, you know, getting a little bit older and putting it more in a context for me personally. The character you're supposed to uh, empathize with, um, Lewis. Uh, Lewis, he's a creepy scumbag and he's not a very likable character at all. Um, no, not at all. And honestly, there's not a lot of likable characters in this film. There's a few on the nerd side, but the rest of them, all the jocks, they're all basically fascists. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, they, they really play up that that Aryan youth kind of thing uh, pretty strong yeah. in this in this film. Well, well, they make they make a direct point of it because, um, and we'll get in probably get into it later, but the fraternity that the nerds end up being adopted by is like an all black fraternity, and then they make direct allusions to. Uh, racial uh, issues and stuff like that, you know. Well, all of the, all of the. I mean, if you watch the film with this through this lens, all of the kind of violence or the the pranks, the you know, throwing uh, bricks through the window, um, you know, burning the word mm-hmm. words on the lawn, you know, flaming crosses on the lawn. I mean, these are all directly taken from racial clan, yeah. the clan. I mean, and when you view it through that lens. I mean, this is this is, I think, why the film is problematic in some ways. Is that it encourages people like me, you know, who, who grew up being picked on and bullied. I mean, I was bullied as a child. I was, I was, you know, I was a weakling. I didn't play sports. Mm-hmm. I was the kid sitting and, and reading science books and who knew all the questions in class. You know, that that was the kid I was. I was chubby. I I wore glasses. I was, you know, like I got picked on. I mean, and this movie taught me that, like, well, it's going to be okay because like, you get revenge on them by, you know, taking other women when you get old. Like, I mean, it's it's a... <laughs> I mean, I think there really is... I'm not going to put the whole Gamergate thing on Revenge of the Nerds, but so much of what makes Gamergate so toxic to the kind of culture at large and to nerd culture specifically is kind of found in embry- embryonic form in this basic kind of jocks versus nerds mentality 
and the idea that that nerds are this persecuted minority like Jews or, or people of color and, or gay people and that sort of thing. I think the fact that they end up joining a black fraternity, like, wow, you could unpack that for days. Like, there there are some really interesting things going on in, in yeah. the way that they are treated. I'm sorry, I just, I, I you gave me the perfect opportunity to throw that in there. So I, I stuck it <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, I, I, think, I think at one point, I think the writers at some point, they had some good intentions and an idea like, yeah, we can, we can go for this. And I think they grossly kind of fucked up in that regard. Like, they're, they're making some comparisons there that are really not very apt at all. Like, I mean, com- comparing comparing the treatment of nerds to the treatment of blacks or something in society, that that's kind of, that, you're kind of stretching it a little bit. But, I mean, I can see where they were kind of putting their, their thoughts as, as far as that goes. Uh, but then they do that, and I think there's probably good intentions there, but then the writing totally fails when it comes to the rapiness in the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, um, yeah, there's so much of that. I, I and, and here I'm going to um, possibly get, you know, you can edit this out if you choose to, but I uh, I think there is a uh, interesting dynamic if you watch this film and whenever the word nerd is used, replace it with the word digger. Mm-hmm. Just just you know because the way that <laughs> they call us nerds, you know, you just got your asses kicked by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Read it, watch it with that in mind, and just every time, just replace that n word with the other n word. And it plays as this, like, really very different film, if you think that that's kind of what they were going for. And I think that that largely is what they were going for. I mean, I think they were trying to do a comic distillation of that idea, and they were trying to to play it for the funny. Um, I bought the DVD, and there's actually, and, and this just, like, totally solidified this in my mind, that this is sort of the idea they're going for. There's a deleted scene in which Lewis and Anthony Edwards' character Gilbert, 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 Lewis and Gilbert are invite or kind of show up and kind of gate crash the uh, national Lambda 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 fraternity like organizational meeting mm-hmm. kind of thing, and uh, it's like a way to kind of get in the good graces of uh, UN Jefferson and, and kind of be in with the in with the crowd, and yeah. they literally show up wearing like. African garb, like they show up wearing uh, like, the long, the long. I, I'm sorry, I feel really culturally insensitive because I don't know the name of like the the long. Like it was really a big thing in the early '80s that the uh, wearing like the the African dress and the African uh, the the caps and that sort of thing. I meant we, to. We saw, we, we saw that in the party animal in the last episode. We did, we did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that was that was like playing off that kind of pimp stereotype. Yeah, this is like trying to pretend like we're like the socially conscious like embracing our roots in africa wow i mean there is genetically we are all africans you know like mm-hmm. from a biological perspective but like culturally and in terms of sensitivity um anyway i don't know if you're um familiar with kind of i, I did some i did a lot of reading for this um actually mm-hmm. And I did a lot of, I, I watched fewer movies this week because I was trying to kind of catch up on some reading and trying to kind of just get a handle on how I wanted to approach this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with kind of like where nerd culture comes from and where this kind of nerd stereotype is. It's basically, it comes out of there kind of two big places. Like the the visual stereotype, the, the kind of white shirts and pants hiked up and the pocket protector and the, the big glasses is a response to the kind of squares of the fifties. Like the, the you yeah. know, 
it, okay. it's sort of like the ultra white person. Like it is, mm -hmm. it is literally like because black culture is certainly in the fifties, you know, with the birth of rock and roll and the blues and, you know, kind of, there's so much great art and uh, such that was being produced by the black culture that was immediately appropriated by white yeah. people. Like, let's not, let's not pretend it wasn't, but like the idea was like, if you're embracing this kind of African, the, this black culture, you're kind of cool and hip. And so it's the ultra white people and like you, you stereotype that into uh, these guys who wear their pants too high, and they're always wearing yeah. white shirts and they have suspenders and all that sort of thing. And look at how uncool those ultra white people are, which <laughs> again just speaks volumes when you're like trying to then say this is an oppressed minority. Um, it also, I think, is fascinating. I've seen it suggested that this uh, stereotype comes from uh, that that a lot of the the kind of drawings and caricatures also come from uh, Jewish stereotypes that that hmm. you know certainly you know the big nose you know for instance and the yeah. like like these are um overtly racist stereotypes themselves that the, that the that the kind of visual image of a nerd i mean again i've been a nerd all my life i've never known anyone who wore a pirate like i've just <laughs> never i've never seen it in the wild i'm not saying it doesn't exist nerd culture is you know the the, the other place that nerd culture comes from is actually from uh, the kind of guys who were first working on mainframe computers yeah. in the late fifties. Um, there was actually, I think it was at Princeton. I uh, I can't, I didn't get a chance to do it to reread this book, but there's a book called um, Hackers by Stephen Levy, which has nothing to do with the uh, Angelina Jolie movie from the nineties. Uh, uh, <laughs> but it, but there is a there is a uh, there is a, a great book that that chronicles uh, kind of where uh, nerd culture or where you know, who are these people that first started programming computers back in the back in the late fifties? And it started off as literally a model train club where you kind of had these two groups of people. One group of people that was kind of going off and was interested in like meticulously detailing the trains and knowing all their like all the different models and all the different like oh and yeah. this year they switched this and all that sort of thing. And the other group really liked playing with the um, switching systems. Yeah, and he, like making the tracks do kind of funny things through electrical technology, and those people ended up being like they were all kind of computer electrical engineering people, and they started kind of working on the computers, these big mainframe computers, and they basically started a club just so they could go play with the computer. And all of nerd culture, all of the at least kind of the tech nerd culture as we know it today, kind of grew out of that group, which is fascinating. So, so so much like you look at these stereotypes, I mean. There was an attempt in the uh, 2000s to remake this. I mean, this, Original Nerds is a is a movie that has been on the continual edge of remake for yeah. Years. It was 2007. They were trying it and it didn't work. It was the uh, guy who directed uh, the King of Kong documentary. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really great documentary too. It is. Slash Filmcast uh, actually uh, did an interview with this guy back around the time that that movie was released, and I um, meant to re-listen to that interview, but he talked a lot about the uh, kind of the production travails that went on in trying to make Revenge of the Nerds, and uh, just kind of a lot of the issues that they had. Uh, you know, talking to like, like his idea, and I and I forget the filmmaker's name, but his idea was to kind of approach it and say, like, look, you look at this movie from the '80s, and nerds don't act like that anymore. In those days, you can kind of see that, you know, uh, Lewis and Gilbert are, are computer geeks, and they're uh, these people who are you know, clearly electrical engineers. Um, mm -hmm. Later on in the third movie, I think uh, Lewis actually says that he uh, 
as a joke, he's like, well, it's not as hard as designing bullet trains or anything, you know, like, so he's, he's clearly like an engineer uh, of some, of some, like an aerospace engineer or something. But uh, you kind of get to the sense that uh, in the 2000s, nerd culture, you know, nerds took over, like the Star Wars movies were huge, you know, like, like, uh, comic book movies were on the ascension and, you know, like we won essentially. And yet that's, we still act like we're this persecuted minority. Th- yeah. That's the thing. That's a good point. I mean, the movie really wouldn't work anymore because who buys nerds really being ostracized anymore? I mean, it, it really doesn't work anymore in that context. I mean, which, which I think is amazing. I love one of my kind of favorite things. I go into the comic book store, the local comic book store on free comic book day. And I see like five year olds like picking up free comic books, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't grow up with comics. That's one of those nerd things that I just didn't. I was just never a part of that subculture. But the fact that there's just this community of people that like accept like that you can go in and, and be into comic books, and it's cool to like comic books. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm proud of like where this culture has gone in that sense. The well, fact that from that comic culture, they absorb this misogyny and racism is terrible, <laughs> but you know, like that's the flip side of it in some ways. And that's what I'm trying to combat. But, you know, but, but you, you do see like um, all these like Holly, like Hollywood for the longest time. And Kevin Smith's talked about this a lot where for a while he was, you know, the kind of guy where, Oh, well we'll get you to come into our studio and write a script for this comic book movie that we're thinking of producing or whatever he's like why don't you just get the people from the actual comic books to write these movies and they're like oh we don't want comic book people we want you know we just want a hollywood regular hollywood writers and stuff to write these movies and now they're at the point where they have comic book fans like real diehard comic book fans and people who worked on comic books actually writing the movies you see now like superhero movies and stuff like that so absolutely there's definitely been a bit of a sea change as far as uh that, that culture is gone. There's this uh, great, um, I mentioned uh, on an earlier part of the Sex Comedy series, the uh, Kevin Smith, uh, not interviews, the uh, the, the big uh, kind of shows he did to college campuses in the yeah. with Kevin Smith series. Yeah. Uh, the Q&As, the Q&As that he yeah. used to Sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you go to YouTube and just search Kevin Smith, John Peters, you will, or Kevin Smith talks about Superman, you will, uh, it's about 20 minutes long, it is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And it talks about like Kevin Smith's, you know, he talks about his experience in 1997 or so trying to get the Superman lives project off the ground Mm -hmm. and all the issues that he had in getting that to not happen. And all of the stuff that just kind of like the student executives just didn't get it. And Mm -hmm. today there's certainly a sense like they, they, they certainly get it for the dollar signs. Um, but they're, they're certainly much more willing to kind of, hire people that kind of know these properties. And now, of course, the issue is the other side, where then the, the nerds care more about, like, whether the costume looks a certain way than yeah. a good story or not. And so you run into the opposite problem in some ways. But that's 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 an interesting point to get off onto the, uh, the Kevin Smith talking about, like, making these movies. But, uh, you know, the, the filmmaker who was trying to remake Revenge of the Nerds went on in some detail about, you know, like, he was going to have, like, the booger character. He was going to, like, there was going to be a new character named Cockknocker. Um, or uh, I think it's Cockknocker. It might it might be something else, but it you know the the idea was to update it and to bring this kind of new sensibility and kind of examine what nerd culture was like in the 2000s and still do kind of a raunchy sex comedy, still do kind of a hard R sex comedy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
but to leave behind those stereotypes. And I think the executives just didn't get like why you wouldn't just kind of do the same thing again, but you can't do the same thing again Yeah. Um, and, and have it work at all. In fact, uh, we've talked a little bit about doing an episode all about remakes and movies. We think you should, mm-hmm. should, I think Revenge of the Nerds should absolutely be remade. I think that there really is like a really interesting, good idea in this yeah. movie. And I think that you could absolutely remake this and make it a hilarious and, and moving comedy out of it, but you have to rebuild it from the ground up essentially. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. To a certain degree, you definitely do. I think it's interesting in this, um, this film, like there's only like three or four actual, what you would call nerds in the mm-hmm. film. Well, when the, the, the essential crux of the uh, film is that all these like freshmen get grouped together because the jocks need a new, uh, fraternity house because they burnt theirs down uh, in, in a drunken in a drunken uh, party. They they yeah. burnt their house down. Yeah, and, and uh, they just come in and and totally just get to again racial violence. You know, writ uh, onto nerds. Literally come in and ghettoize the uh, the nerds and force mm-hmm. them into um, into a I'm sorry a concentration camp style. Uh, Sleeping area in the gym. Um, well, the, well, the uh, worms are there. The, the little kid nerd that's you know mm-hmm. advanced to college, well beyond his years. Um, he makes a comment about how this looks like a World War Two. Like, right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like there's. It's hard to take a lot of this seriously because you see stuff like the jocks just throwing the nerds out the fucking windows and stuff like right, that. Right. So you know the writers weren't thinking at all about deeper issues. I mean, they had some sort of pretense there probably somewhere in the script about hey yeah uh, bigotry and uh, ostracization and stuff like that but for the most part it was like how many tits can we get into this film uh, how many gross out jokes can we get into this film uh, how much silly bullshit can we get in this film and they pretty much fill it to the brim <laughs> when it comes to that and the nerds in this film like I said there's a handful of actual nerds the rest it's just outsiders I guess it's probably probably the best way to describe it is uh, freaks and geeks I mean it really yeah. is if you, if you remember that uh, TV show that that much beloved among certain people who are slightly younger than me you know my wife just worships that show um, mm. I, I saw I mean I like that show a lot but it, I don't love it the way that she does but yeah. um, it speaks to her much more directly the idea that you kind of have these two kind of groups of people who kind of band together because they're all kind of ostracized from the larger society. And mm-hmm. so you've got the geeks, the people who are, you know, Lewis and Gilbert, who are good with computers and math and all that sort of thing. But then you also kind of get just kind of the weird spazzy guys, the uh, the kind of the, the, the gay guy, the Japanese guy. Like, look, diversity in our film. We have a really horrible Asian stereotype walking around this movie. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and Booker, he's not a nerd. He's just no, got no, no. really bad hygiene. <laughs> he's just yeah, like... Right. I, I would kind of love to see like like what was Booger's major? You know what what did what? Um, actually, we we find out in the uh, third film he actually ends. He's a lawyer in the third film. Uh, he's, well, he's an out and out ambulance chaser. Like literally, you he is introduced in the film. He is uh, one of the other characters calls him and he answers the phone and he is literally chasing an ambulance to the hospital to uh, you know. So that so, shows you kind of the the level of uh, you know. So he becomes better call Saul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Saul Goodman. <laughs> and then the uh, the fourth film is all about him uh, finding love and, and getting married. So, ah, you know, oh, is, uh, well, isn't that sweet? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> it is. I wish I'd gotten to rewatch those because I'm sure there's so much going on. I did rewatch the first two for this uh, podcast. Mm. And just didn't have time to sit down and, and watch the other two um, this morning before I had to go to work. But. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's funny that uh, essentially the big competition where the nerds are vying for the status of becoming like the principal of the the council or whatever for the fraternities, mm-hmm. uh, they cheat to win. They they cheat in basically all the events to win. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you know, for for me, like watching this as a kid, I'm like, well, they use their brains instead of you know, like like I mean, they're they're. They're playing by the rules, just like kind of modifying. Yeah, rules, but I mean, come on, that javelin! Come on, that that javelin would yeah. not be. <laughs> and and Wormser designed this javelin for Lamar's limp-wristed throwing style. Yes, um, which I will say, you know, at at I mean, I was probably again like ten years old when I saw this the first time, and I will uh, not say, uh, you know. I didn't really get what that was like, what limp-wristed throwing style meant, but like, yeah. man, you know, um, we're recording this on the day that the uh, the United States of America has has officially, the Supreme Court struck down gay marriage bans. It's mm-hmm. been wonderful. My Facebook and Twitter feeds are like filled with all the gay, and I think it's great. And, <laughs> um, you know, the, the more gay in my face, the happier I am. That's kind of the... But uh, to go back and look at like, wow, this was thirty years ago. I mean, this this movie is thirty one years old. Just you've got a mincing stereotype right the center yeah. of this movie. <laughs> and you know, on a positive level, he's treated with the same respect of any other character in the film. You know, I mean, Booger has a couple of bad you know lines about you know um, you know calls him a, a Nancy or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, he's certainly not not ostracized from the group, which I think does speak to. I think it is interesting that nerd culture will kind of accept individual gay people as long as you get to rag on them a little bit. They will accept, <laughs> they will accept other outsiders up to a point, but not yeah. actually like join them and advocate for change in like their living situation. So it is sort of like a, it's a very selfish kind of acceptance, I think in the, in the broader nerd culture, which we kind of run into, but um, yeah. and the, um, and the Asian character is kind of accepted as one of them. I mean, it is, it is interesting that they, they do kind of accept, uh, as long as you're a, a male, you're, you're fine with the nerds in this movie. If you're a female, you're either a hideous hag or you're um, uh, going to be uh, panty-rated. Uh, well, uh, in the case of Gilbert, and I'll, I'll make a point here, Gilbert should have really been the real lead of this film. Like He's, mm-hmm. the, he's actually the one really good, decent, honest, mature nerd in in the whole group and he actually has like as as little as there actually is written on on paper for the relationship he actually has the real honest nice sweet relationship with a girl she happens to be a nerd the the only the only real problem is like he's sort of a mentor in a way to uh to lewis especially in the second film he becomes more of a mentor character but um he becomes the Yoda to yeah. a certain degree. But he really the movie should have been about him. Like he he has a much more mature outlook on life. He knows who he is. He's comfortable with who he is. And that's much more refreshing. And again, I think it, it, it just boils down to the writers where they had some good ideas here and there and then they just forgot about shit and other parts of the other right. parts of the story, you know, they just didn't really give a fuck. So that's that's a little little bit depressing, but I mean, um you, you could definitely see where a remake would definitely benefit from like more maybe emphasizing more on the Gilbert character, you know. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, I was trying to, uh, I didn't, there is a kind of uh, cast and crew commentary on the DVD, which you didn't have time to watch. 
uh, I was uh, going to um, I, I spent some time kind of looking at trying to find the uh, a little bit about the production history of Revenge of the Nerds. Like, mm-hmm. where did this idea come from? Like, you know, who had the idea? How was it pitched? Like, what what was the original impetus of the film? You know, what were the writers thinking? Um, very little of that information is at least kind of easily accessible, at least from a from a Google search. So uh, I. I may kind of keep trying to dig into that a little bit more and maybe share, if I find anything I'll share on a future episode. But I think that there is this sort of like this fascinating thing about this film. Like where we talked about it with the party animal, like where did this come from? Like mm-hmm. what was, what was the genesis of this? You know, I think coming in, even coming into this podcast, I was kind of under the impression that there was this, that this is sort of a response to animal house, right? The, the animal house is kind of about the, not necessarily the jocks, but the, the kind of guys who, the, the frat guys who just sit around and, and drink all the time. And they poke fun at the nerds. And there were so many of these kind of movies in the early 80s that were all about, like, you know, frat guys getting laid, you know. And mm-hmm. th- this is sort of the, well, we've been picked on for all this time. And now we've got, now we get our own movie. And now we get to take over. And um, that's sort of how I saw it. But I'm not sure that that's, I mean, I don't think that there were a ton of, like, college movies in the 80s in the before this movie that really no. um, did that. Uh, I think no. it, when you saw nerd characters, they were usually like one or two token nerds in a yeah. in a in a movie, and they did nerd shit. Uh, you know, they were you know they were the ostracized. They were they were the geek of the group. I mean, they might have been with the cool kids uh, or whatever. You know, fighting against. Usually, it's like uh, the sort of party guys, frat guys from the Animal House sort of thing, fighting against like the ultra snobby rich guys or something like that, right? Right. And the nerds would be. They'd be the bit player who comes up with a contraption to fight the rich guys or whatever, and they usually end up uh, having sex with like a, a, a really uh, filthy prostitute or something along those right, lines. Right. You know, it's interesting that this seems to just have come out of nowhere to a certain degree. Yeah. And uh, I would, uh, I did uh, do some actual academic searching to try to find some papers that were kind of about like where the kind of stereotype came from. And uh, I don't have easy access to the university library right now where I can uh, access some of those. So I didn't get to do a lot of But I know that research is out there. So, I, again, hmm. I'll, I'll try to kind of keep that in mind when I'm um, wandering around and have some time to uh, wander over to the university library and do some research. Because it is something that kind of fascinates me just, just, again, where these ideas came from and what, yeah. you know, is, I think, really important. Um, to to understanding this film and it's as to its intended audience. Um, I think it's interesting that a uh, I don't know if you saw the American Splendor film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember the uh, the kind of nerd character in that film loves Revenge of the Nerds. Like they actually yeah. go to see Revenge of the Nerds in American Splendor, and he's obsessed with the film and and you know it speaks to him so deeply. And obviously, you know the the uh, guy who wrote American Splendor. His name escapes me at the moment. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm such a terrible fan. Um, you know, was writing this about people in his day-to-day life. So obviously this this moved a lot of people. And the fact that they made a sequel a couple of years later and then two more, they kept trying to reboot it, you know, yeah. uh, online, uh, does speak to the fact that there, there always has been, you know, since this film came out, it, it definitely spoke to people, myself oh. included, when I was, you know, when I was a kid. So, you know. I could I could see I could see how it would um, definitely speak to someone of the uh, sort of a American Splendor sort of vibe because there's definitely this sort of uh, intense kind of revenge film underneath the whole thing like there's this sort of need for taking revenge at all costs almost to a degree yeah yeah, yeah no 
And that that's spurred upon by Lewis. I mean, Lewis is not presented as a scumbag necessarily, but he just makes a really a lot of wrong choices. And in the end, he comes off like he comes off even creepier than our friend the ginger rapist in in a previous episode. Well, if you remember the uh, the Willie Ames character from Zapped, yeah, know, like he's he's sort of that stereotype of the of the guy who uh, you know is trying to get with the ladies who who thinks he's God's gift to women, who isn't at all God's gift to women, at least. Mm. Here's a weird thing. He's going after this girl who is very one-dimensional. Like like you said, all the all the women in this film she, are She's the pretty blonde. Yeah, they're they're all they're all presented very one dimensional. I mean, I, I made the comment that the jocks are all essentially fascists. I mean, she's essentially this Aryan airhead who wants nothing to do uh, with this guy until until he uh, performs really good oral sex on her, and then all of a sudden she turns uh, a whole new leaf. These nerds, they're not necessarily all that ostracized. They're presented as people who can get women. I mean, uh, well, well, and and here's again, this kind of. Uh, just to to talk about the kind of ingrained misogyny in the film, you remember that like the, the so the pies the big thing that the pies do the the uh, the uh, omega pies mm-hmm. the, the the cheerleader pretty girl fraternity the the you know who two of them have lines in the entire film other yeah pretty much yeah. so they they come out they uh, offer to, to be dates to the to the lambda lambda lambdas and then. Just stand them up like that. That's the, mm-hmm. that's all they did. So basically, they exhibited sexual agency, and no woman is allowed to exist by exhibiting any degree of sexual agency. Of saying, you know what, maybe we don't want to sleep with you after all. I mean, it's kind of a shitty thing to do because I mean, the movie makes it clear that they had no intention of ever coming to the party at all. Yeah. But the fact that like that in and of itself is such a uh, like it deserve like it deserves that level of retaliation. The other thing is then it's like. Well, you can invite the moose over, and the hey, they're called the moose. So yeah, you know, that's a bit of a let's just let's just <laughs> let's just leave that aside, you know. But the whole thing is like, oh well, they're not the pretty girls; they're like the homely girls. They're like the girls that kind of look like us, but then they end up having a much better time smoking yeah. weed and hanging out with the these girls. And remember, Booker has the line, you know, where he's like, oh no, not the moose. Don't invite the moose. And then later on, he's like hitting two of them at once. Like it's, it's yeah. I mean, ultimately it's kind of like, you know, except who you are in life. And like, honestly, the girls that you're hanging out with here are probably way more interested in you and you will be way more interested in them than the, uh, the stereotypical pretty blonde girl. Well, um, and, and, and I'm, I mean, if 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 anyone wants to make a point about it, the uh, the girl that uh, Lewis ends up sleeping with at the party, she's pretty good looking. I'd be she, interested. <laughs> she, she's certainly there's certainly no reason to you know even if you're just looking on looks, right? Mm-hmm. This is a girl who came to your party, sight unseen, showed up, had a good time, had some casual sex with Lewis. He walks out acting like Hugh Hefner, like yeah. he's like straight up red red robe and smoking a pipe, and then you never see her again. And yeah. it's like, what's her story? Like yeah. this is this is this is a much more interesting character than the uh the Betty character, who is kind of the super skinny blonde, and when she gets naked halfway through the film, 
I, my only thought when I saw that scene again as an adult is like, oh my god, give that girl a cheeseburger. Like, yeah, same here. Like, ridiculously I can, I can, skinny. I can see your ribs. I can see your spinal column. And, yeah, no, uh, like you know, <laughs> she does. She does have a nice ass. You know, yeah. in the in that sequence where she's uh, writhing in bed asleep for I've never known a woman to do that, but no, apparently, you know, but apparently, um, hey, whatever whatever happens in the '80s stays in the '80s, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but. But yeah, I mean, the, the here here's the thing: the other nerds they're influenced badly by Lewis's bad decisions. When Gilbert should have been the leader of the nerds, and he should have been the one directing them. Lewis, it, his his biggest problem is he feels like he's entitled to yeah. to something more, and he's not oh. entitled. He has to earn what he gets, but he feels like he's entitled, and that's I think that's the biggest biggest problem with that character. I mean, and, and the fact that this character has been so embraced. I mean, sexual entitlement of nerds is a is a thing. Like, mm-hmm. it is absolutely... I mean, it is the core of Gamergate. Like, what is Gamergate except for... I am entitled to see um, pixelated giant breasts and naked women and strippers that I can uh, beat up or have sex with if I want in my video games, and no stupid feminist is going to tell me otherwise. You know, I'm not listening to a woman that tells me, you know what, maybe it'd be healthier if there were actually, like, people that had boobs in your mo- in your game. Like, <laughs> it, no, no, fuck you. We're going to harass you and do bomb threats and that sort of thing. Can you tell I have a very low opinion of the uh, Gamergate crowd? It's <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, unless you had anything else to say about the first film, we could probably uh, segue into the sequels. But uh... Sure. I, I just had one more thought, and it's kind of a, a recap of what I was talking about last week mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Goobies Go to College, where I was uh, talking about the panty raid that kind of mm-hmm. was... I actually did a little bit of research on panty raids, uh, by which I mean I read the Wikipedia article on panty raids, um, <laughs> which... Uh, it's absolutely worth reading. Uh, you know, I didn't do any more research than that, so I won't claim to be an expert. But panty raids grew out of the the uh, the first panty raid, as we, we kind of understand it, took place in 1949. And it was uh, sort of a, what we kind of sociologically refer to as a mating ritual. It was definitely a, the women were accepting, it, it was a way of kind of expressing sexual agency both ways. And these things kind of went on on college campuses all through the 50s, and in that time it was a way of sticking it to the university administrators that you know had very restrictive rules about mm-hmm. the way men and women were allowed to um, be together and you know all that sort of thing. And so when you see it as a as something that is you know this kind of agreed upon social activity where the point is to kind of express a certain amount of sexual agency on both sides in this kind of repressed mini society it's a much more it's like okay yes i totally get that like that's something i'm totally a fan of and then when you see it in the 80s where they're doing it and it's they're taking this idea and then using it as a literal like we are coming to invade and to sexually assault you and take your panties and see you naked against your will it it is the sort of thing where culturally the idea that like oh this is boys will be boys has kind of taken off but i did want to uh both refer back to last week's episode because i thought because i was kind of reaching for something at that point Mm -hmm. and i didn't i had just hadn't read enough to to really speak to that but ironically ghoulies go to college has probably the most realistic panty raid in any film that I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you yeah, do it through that 1950s perspective, you know. 
Yeah, because the girls expect it, and they basically set a trap for the guys who do right. it. And, and they get uh, them naked, and they're t- taking their tops off, and they're yeah. like, it very much is like, we're all going to kind of have a little bit of sexy fun. And yeah. like, I am totally in favor of that. So, yeah. And yeah, the thing about the Panty Raid and Revenge of the Nerds is uh, it starts out as their revenge against the, the girls' uh, thing, but then, of course, it segues into let's install these cameras everywhere. By the way, how none of these with yeah. like, how none <laughs> these of these women saw these, these cameras? These are the most ridiculously oversized uh, holes for cameras like imaginable. It is, yeah, uh, uh, yeah no. Um, these guys would all go to prison. Yeah, in, in, in a in a anything resembling a realistic universe. Yeah, uh, Although, again, again, a fault a fault of the writers. Where it's like we just don't give a shit. We need to. We need we need some well, sort of transition to showing titties on the screen. Well, right now. A, f- a fault of the. I mean, that's not even necessarily the writers. That's the production team. Like, well, like we yeah. have to indicate. Like we have these giant holes being drilled out of this girl's wall, you know, and that sort of. Thing. Well, well, no. The funny the funny thing is, like, they're they're drilling these giant holes for these cameras. Uh, I think it's boogers. Like, you sure they're not going to hear this when they're drilling the holes? No, we got a silencer on our drills, so you know the no, massive Lamar is Lamar and Wormser. Oh, that's right, right, right. So, by the way, the fact that those two characters, we haven't we haven't really talked about the details of like the character interactions in the film, but there are some really interesting like dynamics at play. I mean, there is some clever writing in the fact in the way that okay, so Takashi is an Asian stereotype to the nth degree. But the fact that he and Booger play poker together and Booger's just taking him for a ride yeah. is a pretty funny idea. The fact that like Wormser just kind of becomes a little miniature gay boy and uh, <laughs> you know is wandering around and like doing uh, aerobicized videos and stuff yeah. with Lamar. I mean, it does kind of speak to like a certain amount of like, yeah, we all just kind of accept each other, and that's yeah. something that's something I can get behind. I, I do like that element of the film, and that's something I really responded to when watching it. <laughs> Uh, actually, my favorite character is the uh, Timothy uh, Busfield uh, plays Poindexter. Poindexter. I, I, I like I like that this character has basically a delayed reaction time compared to everyone else in the film. Like he's <laughs> right. he's out of step with everyone. Like even when he's dancing and stuff, he picks up the beat like four or five minutes later after everyone else. He smokes the pot. He picks up the effects of the pot like four or five minutes later than everyone else. And I love his reaction every time something happens, like whether he's getting a boner or whether he's getting high. He just starts screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Timothy Busfield is a really good actor. And I mean, that that again, uh, John Goodman is in this film. John Mm -hmm. Goodman. Amazing actor. A very svelte John Goodman. (laughs) A very svelte John Goodman. Uh, Very, uh, I mean, fascinating. I mean, again, the the level of talent on display here is kind of amazing. In in the hands of lesser actors, this would, uh, you know, I'll I'll make uh, just one more thought that just occurred to me, and uh, then we, I I do want to move on to the sequels. Um, And that is uh, half, during the party scene, when when they're all getting high, one of the things that Gilbert and his girlfriend do is uh, switch glasses. Yeah. And if you notice, through the rest of the film, Gilbert is wearing her glasses. Mm -hmm. Like, it turns out that they share the same prescription. Not to get all, like, feminist queer theory on you here. Okay, so apologies. But is there a better metaphor for seeing life through the eyes of the female character than switching glasses with that character? Oh, that's interesting. And, 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 you know, the fact that they switch glasses and they find, oh, no, I actually, we have the same prescription. This, This would have been an opportunity, again, in the better version, over in the better universe, where 
this was a much better movie. This would have been the moment where he discovers, like, oh, by the way, Lewis is kind of a dick. And maybe maybe we should treat the moves not as, like, shitty as we do. And st- you know? Um, yeah. So anyway, just, just a... Uh, just a thought. It's sort of it's a, such a weird little moment in the film that, uh, and and then the fact that he continues to wear her glasses through the rest of the film. Yeah. Um. I don't. I, again, I don't know if there's some like weird production detail on that where he just liked like Anthony Edwards just likes those glasses better, and so they <laughs> wrote that little bit, and so okay for the rest of the film you can wear these different glasses. I I don't know, but um. Moving on to the sequels, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to part two, nerds. Did you watch part two? I've seen, yeah, I've seen part two plenty of times. I, I saw, I watched it again this week. So my feeling on part two, and I again, this is one I watched parts one and two just over and over again as a kid. Part two always felt lesser than the first one growing yep. up. Um, watching it again, it's like man, this robs the later Police Academy series like just crazy. It is, it mm-hmm. is completely straight up wacky hijinks. Um, there's not a ton of like nudity in the first film. But there's none in the second film. It no. is completely much more kind of family friendly, even though it does have some 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 language and such. And borrows from that late '80s comedy formula to a T. Again, deeply racist. Um, you know, <laughs> deeply sexist. Uh, Courtney Thorne Smith is in this film and has um, basically nothing to do. Uh, yeah, and, 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 why, and why is she? And they mention Betty in the film. And yes. that she's with Lewis. Why is Lewis pursuing Courtney? So, so, so Lewis, I, I paid attention to this, and I was drinking at the time, so I may have missed a, a detail or two. So at the beginning of the film, when he's getting ready, like in the kind of pre-credits or, you know, the, the itsy-bitsy, uh, eeny-weeny-tiny, both-the-dot-bikini segment of the film, where they show everybody getting ready to go to Fort Lauderdale, uh, you see him kind of pick up the photo of Betty and then, like, set it down. Mm-hmm. And like in clear cinematic language, oh, she we remember her. I'm still dating her, but she's not in this movie. She couldn't come along this time. All right, boys will be boys. He gets to Florida. He meets the pretty blonde uh, receptionist girl. Chet, it mentions that he has a girlfriend, and then it's completely dropped by the movie. There yeah. is no other reference to it at all. Yeah, it's it, it just it just screams that oh we couldn't get her back for the sequel, so we got to shoehorn in a new love interest almost. Like, right, right. Yeah, and and it's and it's really like I mean, Courtney Thorne Smith is is fine in the yeah. film. Uh, I mean, you know, I am certainly uh, she she kind of went on to do Melrose Place, and then what was it, according to Jim or something like that? Like, I she, think, yeah, she, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, she she kind of became a, a working sitcom actor. You know, mm-hmm. I, hey, nothing wrong with that. If I mean, it's a, it's a it's a good job, you know. She's a perfectly fine performer. I don't have any issues with her performance, but she really has given nothing to do. And yeah. I think the fact that even even though they're not dealing with it, the fact that they do have the Julie Montgomery Betty character kind of hanging off screen limits what they can do with this relationship because they can't really make it a, a, anything explicit. They can't do anything with this relationship. All it is is she's pretty and he puts lotion on her back and do they consummate anything at all? I mean, is it, no. I mean, yeah, it's, it's completely, again, kind of speaks again to the creepster nature of the Lewis character. If you do yeah. it that way, where he's cheating on his girlfriend. I mean, you know, you're, you're in Florida. All the rules are out the window once you're in Florida. That's just how it yeah. goes. Right? I mean, the only, the only scene where there's any, like, even semi nudity is uh, where they're stranded on the island and Lewis is dreaming, and then he he dreams of Gilbert talking to him in his dreams, and he there's that brief scene where there's like two women in like like see through negligees, <laughs> and that's You're it. Missing, there there was also the uh, wet nighty contest. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In the film, 
which is a very similar kind of moment. You know, the the kind of like, oh, you kind of see boobs through the, uh, which I remember enjoying as a child watching this film. But certainly, like today, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is kind of weak sauce. In, in yeah, well, it, it's it's essentially like a PG-13 remake of the first film to a lot yeah. of degree, right? Um, and, but but with and I think where where I land on this is it, it took all the kind of cleverness and thematic resonance of the first film. And um, basically just got rid of it completely and just mm-hmm. forced it into this very late 80s formula. I mean, it, it yeah. really does It really does just feel like, oh, this is just kind of what comedies looked like in 1987. They kind of take some of the greatest hits of the first film. Like, the, there, there's a musical number. Why is there a musical number in this film? Because there was a great musical number in the first film. Mm-hmm. And so, yay, we're back. But, like, in, like, the soundtrack is much more generic. I think in the first film, I mean... Um, my wife watched the first film with me when I was yeah. watching it for this podcast. At least she watched, like, I think the first half of it. But um, at one point, she just turns over to me and goes, now, you don't think that's good music, right? Like, <laughs> not, that's not good music. I'm like, no, no, I grew up with it. No, no, no. But that's, there's music in this movie that's good, but that one is not. That one is bad. Um, <laughs> uh, she likes to poke fun at me in that way sometimes. Yeah. But, um, no, uh, it, it just—it feels really generic. It feels really forgettable. It feels really. Um, I, I think. I think the most notable thing is like they bring back the character of Ogre in this yeah. one, and then they turn him into a nerd by the end of the film. Because the nerds accept him in a way that the the, the alpha betas don't, which yeah. again is kind of a. It's also interesting, you know, as long as we're just kind of talking, because we're talking about like the kind of jocks and the the snobs versus slobs and that sort of thing. It's interesting to the degree to which, particularly in the second film. But certainly in the first one as well, the alpha betas are kind of revert are kind of jocks. They're kind of keep referred to as jocks, but they're really more the the snobs as well. I mean, they, they yeah. wear like Letterman's jackets, like they have like the the kind of crisp like uh, scarves around the necks and that sort of thing. And it, it, like they're they're definitely they're not coded as as stupid jocks. They're coded as rich assholes. Which yeah, uh, again, just kind of like the film is saying something it's not say i mean you know it's you know uh the uh one good gag in the film is when ogre is peeing for like a minute and a half that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and i also enjoyed uh it, it's a segment that really goes nowhere i mean actually this segment probably would have worked better in the first film if they had done it because it's it's more more in context it works better uh where booger meets up with James, James Hong's character yes, about yes. The, bel- the belching mentoring or whatever. This room is a pigsty. Thank you. You should be ashamed of yourself. Fuck you. Who died and made you God? That would have worked good for the actual contest in the first film where there's a belching contest. Right, right, where there's the belching contest and then like, oh, I need to learn how to be the greatest belcher in the world, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. That that totally would have... It, it feels like a, it's something that's kind of that kind of got left on the, uh, the cutting room floor in the first film or maybe mm-hmm. it kind of was a script idea that just didn't pan out. And so when they came back for the second one, they said, oh, yeah, let's just... Let's throw this in. 
Um, it's kind of a cute idea. I mean, obviously, it's an Asian stereotype, and you know, but if you view it as more like a kung fu movie stereotype, and you know, it's it's a. Uh, I didn't mind it as, nearly as much as some of the stuff in the first film. I thought no, no. I thought here, I thought here it was the Miami area uh, stereotypes of the uh, the crazy Hispanic lady and that sort of thing. That's yeah. where the horrible racism in this film comes from. <laughs> yeah. Just just putting yeah. it out there. Yeah, because James Hong's character is essentially the the kung fu master. Of course, his discipline is very different than most people's discipline yes. and that that sort of thing. But uh, it, it's still the same thing where the uh, Asian expert is actually much more proficient and better than the white person. It looks down on the white person for being inept and stupid. So right. that that's definitely there's definitely. Uh, uh, well, I guess maybe reverse racism, but not real racism like there was in the first film with the Takashi character or whatever. Right. I mean, if you view it as a, I mean, if you view it as a stereotype, I mean, again, in the first film, and this is something I, 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 I just kind of keep finding little nuggets of stuff in this. Where in the first film, you remember in the musical number, what is Takashi doing in the musical number in the first? He's film? playing an Indian. <laughs> he's, play, he's he's dressed up in an Indian headdress with a gong. Yeah. In other words, if you're kind of yellowish, you're kind of all the same to the to this movie. Like yeah. like the fact that they just and they've got like <laughs> synthesizers, like they're playing synthesizers in the yeah. movie. Like you could be like, oh, he's this Asian character who knows like how to play a synthesizer who knows like computers because he's the Asian character. Yeah. Like, it's they can't even do the Asian stereotype. Like at least that would be like at least it's an Asian stereotype. No, we're gonna make him Native American suddenly yeah, put, for no put, reason. You know, put, put Hirohito on the gong. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I just had to like throw mm-hmm. that out there while we're talking about Asian stereotypes. Oh, no, um, so there's so much good stuff to pick out of these films. Um, really. <laughs> then the then the uh, the second film kind of cu- uh, culminates in this uh, bit where they. Uh, the nerds have like six hours to get back to to stop this vote and and prove their innocence in this trumped up charge. Which I mean, again, if we're talking about the kind of like racial elements of of the nerds versus you know people of color thing, uh, harassment by uh, law enforcement is certainly mm-hmm. on that list. Um, and uh, indifference of law enforcement in the first film. Um, so just yeah. right out there. But you kind of end up with this, oh, we end up being on this island where there's a bunch of military. Like, randomly, there's this island. The nerds, in a couple of hours, manage to jury-rig together a um, metal detector with science that doesn't make sense, by the way. Just yeah. to, you know, I, as a chemist, I can, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. Oh, let's, let's, not even, let's not even touch the uh, computers in the first film and the stuff they do with them. Like, oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. no let's, let's, I mean, I'm willing to just kind of call that artistic license, you know, because he kind of makes yeah. the animation happen in 10 seconds and... Okay, we're we're just gonna call that like really. This is summarizing a scene that took place over a couple of hours, where he's showing her stuff and they're getting to know each other, and they're becoming like, okay, I'm willing to just kind of accept that. Like yeah. that's fine. Um, <laughs> but the uh, you know, I I don't like to just make fun of the science in movies because they're they're never right. You know, they're, they're yeah. never they're <laughs> never. I do think that the uh, the bit where they're finding the uh, latitude. From the angle of the sun, I mm-hmm. do think that's accurate. I think that's something you could hypothetically do. I'm not sure you could do it in the way they're doing it there, yeah. but um, I'm pretty sure that's actually possible. Like if you happen to know what latitude you were on and could like work out which I, you could, pr- that's that seems at least vaguely plausible. But making yeah. a um, making a metal detector out of coconuts, 
uh, is very yeah. obviously um, yeah. Gilligan's Island territory here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Booger gets to repeat his line, they, we've got Bush, only he's talking about marijuana and not, uh, <laughs> and not pussy hair. So, you know, there's that too. Yeah. Um, and then they completely, again, in the like revolutionary fervor, uh, you know, they're literally taking military equipment stashed by the communists in in Cuba mm-hmm. and using it to overthrow the white power structure in yeah. the, of the Alpha Betas. There's so much like thematic revel- relevance that you could pretend to get out of this and this movie does nothing with that <laughs> yeah. at all like it's completely i mean again missed opportunity is kind of one of those things this movie is so dumb that even when it has a good idea it get, doesn't do anything with it you know? yeah well this this movie is clearly a cash-in on the first one i mean oh, yeah, it, yeah, no. you know it, it's it's very very generic um mm-hmm. it's also interesting like uh again going back to the first one a little bit how many of the characters, like, there are other people kind of wandering around the house and stuff who are just not our lead characters, so you do mm-hmm. kind of get a sense of kind of a larger community. Like, it's it's not, like, four or five people. It's, like, a couple of dozen that are kind of moving into this house. Yeah. Um, and here it really is just like, yeah, we got our five leads back or however many. Yeah. Are, and, uh, that's all we really care about anymore. And then they meet a new nerd who, in that subplot goes nowhere except he's just a buddy like he just oh yeah you're a nerd too you get picked on yeah i don't i don't know why that character's in the movie like there there's no reason for that character to be in the movie at all no i don't even remember his name that's all that's all yeah i can't even (laughs) do you have any other thoughts about the uh, second film except for the fact that anthony edwards uh came back for basically two days of shooting it's it's inoffensive i mean on on the bright side there's like no rape going on basically yeah there's no rape in this movie you know like <laughs> but I it's mean, funny it's funny when we reach that level at which there's no rape in this so like yeah, yeah thumbs up i guess but it, it's very it's very boring it's very by the numbers and i mean for a new movie that's very formulaic it has a very depressing lack of nudity in it but i i still like the first one a lot better i mean for all the problems in the first one there's just still so much really cool stuff going on in the first movie. I mean, if you can look past, if, uh, if you sure. can forgive the the many flaws in the film, which mm-hmm. you know, not to forgive it for being thirty years old, but if you can forgive it for for that, they should have known better in nineteen eighty four, and people did know better in nineteen eighty four. But it's if you can take it for what it's intended to be, it's a it's a fun movie. It is kind of effective at what it does. Yeah. Whereas the second one is just really generic. It's yeah. just really like who cares, you know, at this point. Yeah. Um uh the third and fourth movie, the third movie is uh Avengers Nerds, The Next Generation. And <laughs> I kind of saw now there also was a TV pilot at one point. Yeah. Um and that was I think a couple of years before the third movie. I kind of get the feeling the third movie is an attempt to kind of do a backdoor pilot, like they were trying to kind of create this Oh, we're gonna have this new series where you know these kind of younger nerd characters, because Robert Carradine and all the other characters were getting on in age, and they they would be kind of the oh we're kind of the elder statesmen, we're kind of wandering around, but we're not really in this. They have this kind of new cast of nerds, and we're gonna kind of do wacky hijinks with these guys. Um, it was on Fox. I think it could have been a fun little movie, honest, or a fun little TV show if it had. Um, but I don't think it did very well. I don't think it really went anywhere. Um, uh, no, the, I, from what I read, like I've never seen it, but from what I've read, the the one episode, the pilot they did was an encapsulated version of the first movie to some degree. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there was there was a, a pilot of a TV show, and that actually is on the the DVD that I have, but I didn't get a chance to watch it. And then there was 
again, the third movie, I think, was kind of another attempt to kind of do that, you know, like, oh, we're going to kind of try to reboot this and, and bring it back. I mean, again, Revenge of the Nerds is fascinating because it's kind of this one really successful movie and a sequel that did okay, and then continuing attempts to bring it back that are just failed miserably. Yeah. And the third movie, it has some fun bits. I think the uh, the most interesting thing is uh, you, you do find out um, uh, Betty and Gilbert are married, or Betty and uh, Lewis, Lewis are married, and uh, Betty is pregnant in that movie and gives birth at the end of the, the third movie. Or no, is it the third or the fourth? I, again, I should have watched it, but <laughs> she does give birth at one point. Um, she's in it. She's not in it for very long, uh, but she's in it. Uh, probably the biggest uh, thing, if you again, if you're looking big picture thematically, is um, Stan, the uh, the Ted McGinley character, yeah. Jock in the first film, becomes a nerd at the end of the third film. Well, that was originally supposed to be part of the first film, where it was supposed to have been revealed that he was secretly a nerd, from what right. I read. So, yeah, there, there were I think there were a lot of little ideas around. Like, there's again a deleted scene where he's like paying nerds for his uh, for like test answers and for like homework <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, there's there's a, a bit like in the early in the film when they're having the big party and the um, you know when you see like that thirty seconds of them jumping down the stairs into the uh, the tub of beer. Um, yeah. Uh, there was there was a deleted scene where kind of towards the end of the party, Stan gets a phone call on a payphone and he like goes and, and you know it's very clear that he's like buying homework answers from from a nerd. So um, that may have been sort of an early idea that got dropped explicitly. I think in the third film because he's he's kind of presented as this guy who kind of works for the college and he's kind of a shithead to the nerds and he's kind of but he and Lewis become friends. Lewis kind of becomes this hipster douchebag who's kind of becoming the cool guy trying to get with Stan, and then it turns out that Stan kind of embraces his nerd qualities because Lewis teaches him how to use computers, which no, no. in 94, I think, is when that one came out. Like, that was that was kind of a big thing at that point, you know, was the idea that computers are coming into your offices and into your homes, and you've got to kind of accept that this is the wave of the future. And, you know, a lot of people did kind of, like, go, oh, there actually is a lot of cool shit you could do with this. Now, you know, 20 years later, we do this so yeah <laughs> um the fourth film uh, revolves around uh booger uh, getting married he is uh dating i forget the actress it's somebody who was in a bunch of tv at the time and i'm not gonna look it up because i don't care that much but um <laughs> it's uh i need to maybe maybe in the next episode i'll already watch these other two and i'll just kind of bring up any like further thoughts i had yeah I, we can do that i'm yeah. very ill prepared um right now but uh <laughs> Uh, the fourth movie is, is pretty cute. Um, it ends with, uh, again, I think the girl is pregnant or something. Anyway, it's pretty cute. It focuses on the booger character, and I think that was kind of where maybe they were just kind of trying to move and like, oh, let's let's look at, let's you know, this Lewis character, we've kind of done everything we can do with him, so let's mm-hmm. move on to somebody who's a little bit more sympathetic and like... <laughs> Uh, I remember I saw it when it aired originally on Fox in the in the late nineties or whatever, and it was uh, you know one of these Sunday night aired in place of The Simpsons or something. It was, they, they hyped the hell out of it, and it was just kind of like, yeah, that was kind of shitty. Um, <laughs> again, they bring back some of the uh, nerds from the third film, some of the some of the new young nerds, um, including a a fat German guy who eats a lot. I remember he's in the <laughs> film and. Uh, there's very clearly, again, in the third and fourth film, there's very clearly an attempt to kind of have a another Lewis, to have kind of the younger version of Lewis um, in the film. So, again, I'll try to rewatch those, and we'll uh, maybe I'll, I'll just kind of give you a, a brief summary next week. Um, right. But, uh, 
you know, the franchise has gone nowhere really since. Yeah. You know, I would love to see a remake. I, I'd love to see it go full on Ghostbusters to do an all female remake of Revenge of the Nerds. That'd, That'd be, be interesting. Great. Yeah. And do something that's that's more like I mean, if you think about the uh, like the characters, like the zombie squad in uh, Dead Snow Two, <laughs> like just lift those characters and put them right in. I mean, you know, there's so they, many. Yeah, they would fit real well. We could do so many much more interesting things with a Revenge of the Nerds film today, where you could do much more clever things. Um, oh, and as a chemist and a lab scientist, I will say um, when they're handling the uh, hot stuff in the uh, that they put on the jock straps. Oh uh, yeah, no one's wearing gloves. Or goggles. You guys, come on. There's not a natural scientist among you. The real issue is all these people are engineers. They don't know how to handle um, natural sciences. That's my... my, I'm going to end on that. Uh, There we go. Yeah, all right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Definitely... (laughs) Have safety in movies, people. Come on. Let's do this. God damn it. God damn it. Yeah, so uh, I, I I guess we both agree the first film's definitely worth watching, even for its problems. The second film, eh, you could you could skip it. You could watch it on a rainy day, you know, and not be disappointed, I don't think. If you saw it on, and you kind of approached it as like, oh, this is sort of like one of the lesser Police Academy sequels, and just kind of watched it that way, you would yeah. probably be entertained enough. There's there's enough kind of silly stuff going on. You There there's there are still some pretty good performances in the film, but it's certainly not something you should seek out. Um, I did buy, I'll admit, I bought the, the uh, four DVD pack that has all four films. Uh, I spent about, I think, 20 bucks for it on Amazon. I'm not sorry I spent it because, like, buying the first one by itself was, like, 10 And so I'm like, yeah, I'll spend 20 and get all four of them. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. It'll, it'll be something that sits on my DVD shelf, and it'll be fine. So, um, you know, uh, if you if you are at all interested in, in kind of watching through the history of this franchise, that's probably the way to do it. Um, yeah. It's just buy that DVD set. But the, the first film, again, for all of its issues, um, is, is is a lot. I, th- I think it's a lot of fun. It was a big part of my childhood. If I had a, I don't have children, but if I had a son, I probably wouldn't make it a big part of his. I think there are <laughs> that I would rather show him. Um, but it is something that, you know, we can, we can approach from a historical perspective, I think, today and, uh, and still enjoy. There are still lots of fun bits in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, we're coming to a close on our... Uh at least our first sex comedy series. We might end up doing another one somewhere down the line. Um, I just want to mention really quickly that there is a really, really good fucking blog that I've uh, been reading for years now. It's called Movies About Girls, moviesaboutgirls.com, and there's also a Tumblr page for it as well, moviesaboutgirls.tumblr.com, that basically covers sex comedies. Over and over, there's just tons of them. They've they've got a lot of stuff. They focus basically on the uh, 70s and 80s for the most part. A lot of really good reviews, insightful uh, reviews of these films. Uh, very interesting. Uh, if you've liked the sort of stuff we've talked about here in our sex comedy series, this is definitely a blog you should probably look at uh, just to get film recommendations, even just just to see that. And um, really, really good site. So uh, if you're interested, check that out. I think we can move on to basically what we liked the most out of the movies we wa- we watched for this uh, series. Yeah, I'll let you actually start, Daniel, if you'd like to. Sure. Um, I mean, other than, I mean, obviously I, I do love Kevin Smith and so I'm just kind of, I mean, you know, those films are very different than the other ones. Mm-hmm. I think for me, kind of the big discovery was Van Nuys Boulevard. I think that was probably, um, if not my favorite film we watched for this series, it was certainly one that I really enjoyed and I, I enjoyed more than I thought I, I would. I mean, it's definitely kind of a, you know, 
a real movie in the sense that yeah. um, Revenge of the Nerds kind of feels like a real movie. It doesn't just feel like something stupid that was put on screen to show tits. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the one that I'd really like saying, you know, that, that one I'd probably buy at some point. Like that one was actually really entertaining. Also, uh, The Beach Girls, which I, I appreciated. Uh, on your recommendation, I, I really enjoyed that one. Just as, as a, again, just kind of a fun and, and more silly kind of side of things, but um, really enjoyable. And uh, Deborah Blee, I, I think doing this again, <laughs> I, it's it's funny for me that, uh, you know, because I, I, have, I had seen her in Hamburger and in um, A Malibu Bikini Shop, but never mm-hmm. connected those two characters together. And I think admiring her for her acting was kind of one of those bits that I was just like, you know that that was probably the biggest like self discovery in the in this series for me. Um, I will say that watching a lot of these sex comedies in a row for this, particularly in the early days, we were watching. You know, the first few episodes we were watching a lot of the kind of very generic generic eighties kind of stuff. It, it got a little bit wearing at times. You know, I think mm-hmm. spacing it out even unintentionally kind of helped me to to kind of come back to it and approach yeah. it differently. So I don't think I would uh, sink myself into these uh, to, to quite the same degree, but probably the two that I, that I really, you know, respond to the the strongest for doing this series were probably um, Van Nuys Boulevard and, and the Beach Girls. Um, I'm not saying those are my two favorites of all of them, but uh, certainly that those are my discoveries. And that was, I'm really happy we did this series just so I got to see those two. Um, right on. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I'd, I'd be the same in, with you. And as far as like the best made movies would be the Kevin Smith ones, like the Clerks, Clerks Two, Chasing Amy. They're definitely better made. They're probably more mature to a certain degree. They definitely mm-hmm. they're more interested in actually talking about issues than they are just showing tits on the screen and stuff like that. But the ones I enjoyed the most, I'd, I'd have to say Van Nuys Boulevard is my favorite out of all of them too. I, I really like that film. My second would actually be Hamburger, the Motion Picture. Uh, <laughs> And I think there's it's something... It's a fun movie. I'm not disagreeing with you. No, it's it's very fun. And I think there's something deeper going on in that film than what people actually thought of in the to- at the time when it was released. I think there's probably a bit more going on in that film. And I, I just enjoy the fact that it's so incredibly pol- politically incorrect and it's very proud of it. <laughs> so I, I enjoyed that one quite a bit. That one has uh, that like, social satire element that was yeah. really interesting, too. Like, it is kind of one of those, I think I said it on the podcast, I mean, that's another one that I'd really love to see them remake today yeah. with a little bit sharper edge to it, like, like reapproaching some of these... Uh, these kind of big behemoth corporations selling, um, you know, crap to millions of people every day and making, you know, billions of dollars off of it. Anyway, yeah. uh, I think there really is like a core idea there that's fascinating that the movie doesn't really do a whole lot with. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, sorry, just uh, to to read. Hamburger is definitely worth watching. Like it, it's yeah, it absolutely, is. it's worth watching at least once. If you're going to watch one, definitely do it. So we could just move on quickly. Uh, do you have any sort of recommendations for films that we didn't cover in this series that you would try to point people towards? Sure. Um, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, we covered a lot of stuff from the seventies and eighties. I really, one of my original goals in this project was to cover more a spectrum of like stuff from the two thousands and stuff from the nineties and from the, you know, we did a little bit of that, but not as much as I would have liked to. And that just like kind of time ran out on us and we just kind of, you know, we, we ultimately go where we go. I think if we do another project like this, we should try to plan it a little bit better ahead of time. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, that's a personal, I mean, that's just me being critical of myself. There's a lot of really interesting stuff. You know, obviously something like American pie is a lot of fun. You know, it's hard to kind of find ones that people haven't, 
seen or haven't heard of. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that, particularly that first film, I think the sequels get increasingly like ridiculous as you go yeah. on. And certainly, the stuff, the direct-to-video stuff. But I do think that uh, that that film, that first film, has a real heart to it, and it really kind of does some of the same kind of stuff that these stuff in the eighties do, but in a, in a more uh, nuanced way, there's also a, um, a film there. There are two films that are basically the same film where the, the filmmaker made, made the same film twice. Um, and uh, it's actually the same guy who would go on to do shoot him up. And I forget his name. I think it's Michael C. Smith or something like that. Okay. Um, but he made uh, his first film was a film called eight days a week. Um, and that's a film where a uh, young kind of nerdy teenage boy stands on Carrie Russell's lawn for a summer. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a um, it's a very kind of heartfelt kind of silly, like kind of broad premise kind of movie, but it, it's kind of like, it's fun and it, it's kind of, but the, um, the first movie shows I saw was actually a movie called 100 girls. Um, and 100 girls is basically this college kid goes and lives in a, a like sneaks into a dorm and like pretends to be a maintenance guy and like lives in the dorm for uh into the the girl's dorm for a while and basically learns how to be a better person and there's lots of titties <laughs> in this movie um lots of uh Catherine Heigl is in that movie like before oh, she yeah. was famous um there are lots of uh, uh really uh, really talented people in it and then that movie got essentially he made it again and he called it 100 women and this mm-hmm. one is much more um Mal, just has it seems like it's just much more smarmy. I think partly because the characters are older in the second film, and it's it's essentially like it's a complete remake with different actors and different kind of, but it's the same basic concept. Um, and that one is not very good, but One Hundred Girls is actually one I think we should cover at some point. It wasn't streaming; I couldn't find a, a copy of it streaming, or I would have uh. recommended it because I did. I just wanted to, to see it again because it's kind of one of those that I discovered, um, you know, kind of late night watching on Showtime or something back in the day. But yeah, I think those are those are probably ones that that I would kind of point to as being kind of interesting. I mean, right on. You know, I didn't make it. I didn't really make a, a list, unfortunately, ahead of time. I was uh, I was a little preoccupied with other stuff this uh, this afternoon. But yeah, that's all right. Um, I've I've definitely got a few here. I I, I just recommend. I'm not going to really say much about them. But I'll just read off the titles just in case anyone's interesting. Um, the cheerleaders from 1973, which is uh, almost a straight up softcore porno to a certain degree but it's actually pretty interesting valley girl from 1983 uh one of the early uh one of the one of the uh early nicholas cage performances as well uh was nicholas coppola then wasn't he yeah i think so yeah yeah uh screwballs from 1983 which is a canadian made classic uh, of the genre very dumb it is it, it's very much falls on the dumb side of these sort of comedies there's no there's no social message or anything like that it's just pure let's get as many women gyrating and showing their tits as possible in a film and i appreciate that that's fine yeah, man, uh, nothing wrong with that yeah, um, you gotta admit the honesty. Like it's just yeah. like you know, like I will never. As much as I talk about feminism and social issues and stuff on this podcast, pornography is pornography. And let's mm-hmm. just, like I've got no issue with pornography that's just like blatantly advertised as pornography. Like, yeah. do your thing, man. It's great. Get your rocks off. Just don't pretend it's anything more. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I mean, it, it's 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 pretty on the nose. I mean, the the, the high school they all go to is called TNA High. I mean, you know, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Porky's, of course, uh, I think is is a definite classic. Uh, you can skip Porky's too, I think, because it's just sort of a retread of the first film. And um, but Porky's Revenge, I think, is also pretty good. It doesn't really have 
any sort of message like the first film did, but it does have a lot of raunch to it, so it's it's pretty interesting. Private School from 1983 with uh, Phoebe Cates. <laughs> I uh, have seen that one, yes. Uh, there is just, uh, and, and Betsy Russell, there's a ton of nudity in that film. Uh, if that's what you're looking for in your sex comedies, that's a good one to go for. I think um, I saw the babblerized version of that on USA or something. Oh, I think man. I've seen the full the full version of that, but uh, yeah. even the even the uh, the the cut version of that was was pretty good, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, you know, one handed watching in, uh, yeah. as a teenager. Uh, I'd also cite Hard Bodies from 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is it's got a pretty interesting plot as well as this sort of young hip guy tries to get all these old nerdy guys laid essentially. So that's pretty interesting. Is and you know it's, it's set in an environment where there's just like tons of bikini babes running around everywhere. So uh, it's kind of fun. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I think that's a definite classic. There's one called The Wildlife from 1984. Uh, I'm trying to think of who the the guy was, um, I can't think of his name right now, but there, there's a well-known actor in that one, but it's, it's a pretty interesting one. It's got, what's her name, Kitten uh, Netavid, uh, something like that, who's who was in a couple of the Russ Meyer films. She has a scene as a stripper in the film. The first turn-on from 1983, which is a trauma film. This is when they were still doing sex comedies before they jumped really on sort of the horror bandwagon. A lot of fun. It's, it's basically about all these losers get trapped in a cave together and basically lie about their sexual exploits and <laughs> so nice. that, that yeah so that's pretty good my tutor from 1983 interesting one about uh this young guy falling in love with basically with his summer school teacher that is hired to tutor him at his house one night only from 1986 which is another canadian made one this one is about uh, a, a girl and her friends basically setting up a sex party for the local hockey players the local hockey team hiring well, that one goes on my list right now you know yeah, hiring prostitutes and stuff like that, and there's some stuff with gangsters and pimps as well, and all that. It's 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 very very smarmy, but very fun. I, I of course I I'd be um, a bad podcaster if I didn't mention Animal House, which I think is probably the one of the definite classics of the genre. And finally, I would mention Hots H period. <laughs> A-O period, period, T. period T period S period. Yeah, which features a all-nude football game at the end, uh, which is quite spectacular. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I did have one more. Sorry, I, okay. I thought of uh, My Chauffeur, which I watched. Uh, oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about, about that. What did yeah. you think of that? That one is, it's a really, again, like kind of, it's it's made by a lot of the same people who are uh, making um, – Party animal, yeah. party animal, uh, and some of the same actors are in it, and some in, in some cases unrecognizably so, which yeah. is uh, interesting. Uh, definitely feels like a you know an attempt to kind of turn some of this genre on its head because it is does have a female protagonist. It is mm-hmm. kind of like raunchy sex comedy kind of stuff, but also kind of comments on some of that you know some some of the issues that we've been talking about in this genre, some of the internalized misogyny and that sort of thing. Um, and it's just a really fun, straightforward. I mean, it feels like a movie. And uh, the lead actress uh, definitely doing that kind of like mid '80s Madonna thing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. through, through much of the film. So, uh, really enjoyable. I, I I really I really like that a lot. It's definitely and it does, doesn't have Penn and Teller as uh, as uh, Middle Eastern uh, sheiks. <laughs> it does. I mean, it has its own issues. We're just gonna leave it at that. But uh, no, it doesn't. Penn and Teller. I think their film debut actually. I mean, yeah. 
Um, the other thing I did want to mention while is talking about uh, another film that one of my favorites from the uh, from that we watched this uh, time, probably the. The, the biggest pleasure for me was uh, watching Zapped again and enjoying that mm-hmm. movie so much. Um, I think that one, again, watching it, watch it at, watch Zapped and then watch Zapped again, and you'll realize how good Zapped again is from yeah. how kind of milquetoast and stupid Zapped is. Yeah, well, Zapped, Zapped again cashes in on the premise. Like, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. Well, Pushes up glasses. Yeah, that that doesn't work on the audio. You know. Well, you know, I have a podcast where, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a super nerd. I talked about it earlier, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I do a Doctor Who podcast. If you're a, a fan of uh, British television, uh, particularly a, a particular kind of sci-fi fantasy show, but not really, from that ran from 1963 to 1989 and then was revived in 2005, and you like listening to me uh, over-intellectualize things, you should listen to my podcast where we talk about all these sorts of things. Uh, my wife and I do it together. Um, we talk a lot about feminism and sexism and uh, silly special effects. And um, we just recently uh, covered, I don't know if you listened to this one, we covered The Invisible Enemy mm-hmm. uh, last week, which is the introduction of the uh, robot dog. And um, basically I talked about slavery and artificial intelligence. So, um, <laughs> you know, most people talk about that character and go, oh, he's adorable and he's cute and John Leeson's voice is, is mm. awesome. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to talk about like cultural imperialism and you know slavery. So yeah, there we go. You know, we talk about the other stuff too. But you know, so that gives you a sense of what the podcast is like. So uh, if you do like, I kind of feel like I'm the bad guy on this podcast because I just bring people down. You know, but uh, (laughs) you know, um, if there are people listening to this podcast, you're like, you know, that Daniel guy. I really want to listen to more of him, just completely unfiltered. uh, Check out my Doctor Who podcast. Yeah, and I would actually recommend it because it's an enjoyable podcast. So uh, we will be going out here. Uh, definitely the uh, trailer, as always, will tell you where to go, where to leave comments, and we encourage all kinds of comments. We want suggestions for movies to watch. Definitely uh, the slasher film series that we're sort of in the stages of planning for hopefully August. If you have obscure slasher films that you want to suggest for us to watch, please do. Uh, we're, we're definitely open to that. Uh, we're just kind of spitballing ideas at this point. We're in sort of the initial stages. So, uh, please, please send some stuff our way. Uh, you, you want to criticize us or agree with us or whatever, please send those comments in anything and everything from our listeners. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to go out on the song that Daniel linked to my uh, Facebook uh, feed earlier in the week. I highly enjoyed it. <laughs> From Rachel Bloom. It's called Fuck Me Raid Bradbury. Yep. Uh, and I made the comment that I wish I had written the Mar- Martian Chronicles because <laughs> because the video is quite awesome. If if you should you should actually check out all of Rachel Bloom's videos because Rachel Rachel Bloom is really uh, amazingly funny and uh, very sexy. And uh, fuck me, Ray Bradbury. Actually, sent, uh, just to uh, I know you're closing out here. I was just gonna say yeah. the reason I picked this is I was literally like trying to think of like there's so much great music from Revenge of the Nerds. And then I thought, why don't we do like just kind of a song about nerds? And then I'm like, oh, weird, a Yankovic song or whatever. And then I thought, we've been talking so much about like lack of female sexual agency, which this song just has in spades. And it just shows mm-hmm. you how good that kind of concept could be, even from a comedy point of view. Uh, because the whole point is that it's this girl who just wants to fuck the then 90 year old man. <laughs> He had not yet died. And um, the one other story I'll tell you is that a journalist showed this video 
which you should go Google the video and actually watch mm-hmm. the video too. Ray Bradbury on Ray Bradbury's 90th birthday, and he was very um, pleased. Let's, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. As he, he should have been. <laughs> as he should have been. Yeah, no, it'd be like, hey, invite her over. You know? Yeah. So, but yes, no, go out on uh, Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury, which was also nominated for a Hugo Award for Dramatic Presentation Short Form in 2010. So yeah, the Hugo I mean, nominated Fuck You, Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury. Yeah, <laughs> not Fuck You, Ray Bradbury. Fuck no, me, no, Ray no, no, no. Fuck me. <laughs> fuck me hard, you know. Yeah. All right. So uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, we will probably not be back uh, for a recording for next week. That's going to be the Christopher Lee uh, tribute show because I'm pretty sure I'm working next weekend. So we're not going to be able to record. So that will be... Uh, my conversation with Daniel and then with Paul spliced together with all kinds of sound bites and fun shit about Christopher Lee. And then when we come back, it should be an episode about our favorite villains. That should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much for everyone for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Steve called me up and said, want to hang out tonight. See an indie film or just grab a bite I said, oh Steve, you're cute But a movie's not what I need No offense, but I'd rather stay home and dandelion wine and we'll read a little Fahrenheit 69 You're a prolific author, Ray Bradbury Come on, baby I'm down on one knee I carved our names on a Halloween tree You write about Earthlings going to Mars and I write about blowing you in my car You won an Emmy Award for the screenplay adaptation of Halloween Tree Fuck me, Ray Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, 
and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.